0: Hello and welcome. I'm your host Petri, and this show helps you to build your company. This episode is all about negotiating. How you do it, why it matters, how to become better, what are the common misconceptions, and there will also be practical examples. Our guest is Dr. Joshua Weiss, who is a negotiation and conflict resolution expert and the co-founder of Negotiation Program at Harvard University. Let's tune in. Hey Charles, how are you doing? I'm doing great,
1: thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it.
0: Why should you not plan when you're doing negotiations?
1: Well, you know, it seems a little counterintuitive uh, to think that way because most people want to plan, they want to have a clear sense of how do I go from A to B to C to get to my desired outcome. The problem in negotiation is that there it's rarely linear. Um, negotiation ebbs and flows. It goes down roads that we often don't see and can't really see coming until we're in the process. And so we actually use what, what we call the 80-20 rule. So there's about 80% of a negotiation that you can prepare for uh, and about 20% that you can't, that you have to just react and respond to. So when you have a plan, um, it doesn't account for that 20%. And that's often where people get really confused, they get disoriented, because their plan isn't going uh, in the way they imagined. And so they start to panic, they start to get nervous. So instead, better to approach negotiation from a contingency planning point of view, which means that you think about what your goal is, but then you think about three or four different avenues that can get you to the same goal.
0: What is actually negotiation if you start from the beginning? How often do we negotiate and, and when it's important? Or is it always as important? Are there, we see in the movies and TV series, there's all you know, these hostage negotiations and sort of high-stake negotiations. Is that the only game in town? Or what's the what sort of the magnitude and when should I care about uh, negotiating?
1: That's an important question because I think a lot of people... Tend to not see themselves as negotiating much. But in fact, my view is that you're negotiating all the time. So, you know, at work, you negotiate with your boss, your co workers, um, people you oversee, um, you negotiate with clients, you negotiate with subcontractors, and then at home with your spouse or your parents or your kids, um, and in the world around you, you know, with a company that you might disagree with, buying a house or a car, all of those are opportunities for negotiating. And so, if you don't realize how much you negotiate, I would encourage you to begin now, uh, because it's not too late, and to learn about negotiation. I mean, this is the big challenge, which is that most people uh, you know, do what I call intuit their way through it. So they take an intuitive approach to negotiation, they don't prepare, uh, and they just think that they're gonna find their way through the process uh, by the seat of their pants. And it doesn't work well. Um, really one of the critical elements of negotiation is that planning phase and doing your research, understanding the parameters of a negotiation uh, in all of this. And so, so I, I believe very strongly that negotiation is something we do every day, all the time and negotiation, you know, you utilize negotiation in order to either for, for really in my mind for three things. The first is to create a deal, you know, in the business world, um, it might be to sit down and to try to work out a deal with another company that seems to make sense with you. The second is to, is to build relationships. Uh, this is something I do a lot of where I'm negotiating with people and I'm negotiating the relationships so that in the future, when I want to work with them or engage with them, I can. And that's a much longer process. It's a much more subtle process. And then the third usage of negotiation is to deal with conflicts and problems that arise. Um, In fact, negotiation is really our primary tool for handling conflicts uh, in a a peaceful kind of manner. And and so if you think about those three realms, that's an awful lot of opportunity for practice and for usage
0: in your own life. And yet it sounds so paradoxical in a way. It's like the previous episode, we talked about selling. Well, it sounds so simple. You just sell. But... Most of the, even business schools, universities, they don't have a sales department. You know, they have marketing, they have, you know, accounting, all these things, but, you know, somehow sales is not there. Mm. And I I think for some reason, I haven't got a lot of education from negotiating, you know. I don't think there was nothing, at least in my formal education, about how do you negotiate. (laughs) so putting it like that okay uh, there's a lot of opportunities to train but then you say again that well we don't actually really practice that and we are not even properly conscious that we are actually negotiating so where to start how how to do that properly
1: well yeah and and i would say that i think things have changed i think um, now when you look around most for example most law schools in the united states offer a negotiation course at least uh, many business schools, many undergraduate schools here in the United States as well are, are focusing more and more on negotiation. And I would also say at the middle school and, and high school level here, you know, so maybe uh, 10 to 18 years old, those kinds of classes are becoming more numerous. So that's good. There's hope there. Um and I think there's a recognition that that you know we do do this quite a bit and, and we better learn how to do it to do it effectively. I mean, where you start in so many ways is um, with educating yourself because the key to negotiation in so many ways is awareness. For example, when, when somebody uh, plans to use perhaps some dirty tricks on you, some manipulative tactics, uh, those tactics only work when you don't know about them. When you know that um, another person is taking a good cop, bad cop approach to the negotiation. In other words, one person is going to look good and the other person's going to be the bad guy and they're going to play off each other. When you know that's what's happening, you recognize it quite easily and say, okay, I'm now playing the good cop, bad cop game and I know how to do that. So, And the good news is that there's a lot of information out there on negotiation. Um, if you Google uh, negotiation books, um, there's a tremendous amount. And so it, and it's a realm that is in some ways open for sort of self-study, if you will, because the books are very accessible. They're written in many ways um, for a popular audience. So they're not acad- too academic for folks. Um, and that's really the first step. And I think when people start to learn about negotiation, what happens is light bulbs start to go out, uh, light start to go off. And They begin to realize that if they learn more and more in this realm, it's going to help them at at every facet of their life. I'm currently um, teaching a class in the master's degree program that I run. And it's the first class in the program for students. And it's an introduction to negotiation class. And I continually get emails from people saying, I can't believe I didn't know all of this. And I'm 50 years old, or I'm 40 years old. And This is so helpful and I can already feel myself feeling more confident. And so that's where you begin. And and I think once you start down that road, you realize that when it comes to negotiation, um, you can learn all of this and it will make you much more confident in your approach.
0: At least for me, I think the most important thing when you're starting to think about it, you're in a negotiation, if you're sort of consciously doing that is that you go there with the right mindset Mm -hmm. because it's so important that your mind is in the game and you you know you know you're preparing yourself and and what's coming and uh, for many people negotiation has sort of a negative connotation
1: yeah it does and i think that's due to their experiences you know most people uh you know again here in the united states most people's experience when it comes to negotiation if they're not Doing it in a business context is buying a car or buying a house, and in particular, cars here um, lemons, <laughs> lemons, and, and and but the process itself with the salespeople is often uncomfortable, and a lot of people it's
0: unfair, will, as well, isn't it? You know, they are professionals; they're selling every day, and you're buying a car, you know, once in a few years or something.
1: Well, it used to be unfair. I would say it's not as unfair as it used to be, and the reason I say that is because negotiation is about. Uh, access to information. In fact, to me, information is the currency of negotiation. And if you think about maybe 30 years ago, uh, when there was no internet, car dealers and the salespeople involved, they had all the information, they knew what they paid, they know what things cost. And it was very hard as a consumer um, of a car, you know, to, to know what that information is. Today, however, there are a number of websites out there, for you to do your preparation and planning so that you can learn more and more. And I think what you're actually seeing certainly here in the United States is that people have moved away from that model of negotiating car prices. There are a lot of places here that just have a, a no, no negotiation price because so many people don't like that process. Now, of course there's a problem with that, which is that the dealer is the one that puts the price on there and it's usually higher than it ought to be. (laughs) But, But I think in general, that's the problem is that, you know, most realms in life when we're uncomfortable, um, we don't do well and we don't want to be engaged with it. And that's where a lot of the anxiety comes from uh, and the uncertainty of it, right? If we don't know what the parameters of the negotiation are, then we feel like we're grasping in the dark. We're, We're not able to really get a good sense of where I should be headed. And that's, again, back to your research and your planning and your preparation, why that's so very important.
0: What are the biggest fallacies, the biggest mistakes you can do when you, when you start to negotiate?
1: Well, there's a lot. And you, you reference one about mindset. You know, a lot of people come into negotiations, and, and the world tells us this. So it's somewhat natural and normal, I suppose. But the world kind of tells us that there's going to be a winner and a loser. And, you know, the best negotiators that I work with and have worked with for many years no, that's not true. You know, the majority of our negotiations are with the same people over and over again. Probably not when you're buying a car, but when you think about your negotiations at home, obviously they are. But even in a, in a business context, you're tending to negotiate with the same people time and again. And so having a win-lose mindset doesn't really help you. You know, if you're trying to negotiate with a client and maybe you squeeze a little bit more money out of them but they walk away from the table feeling badly about it or realize after the fact that you took advantage of them, they're not going to be your client for very long. So you have to have um, kind of a, what I call a mutual gains mindset. I don't always, I don't think there's always the opportunity for win-win where everybody gets everything and they want, but I do believe that there um, is an opportunity for mutual gain for you both to do better than you can when you walked in the door. So I think that's the first thing. Um, The second thing... Can can we
0: pause just a sec here? Um, Sure. How can you set that? You know, if you're coming to the negotiations with someone, obviously, maybe someone you know, and you already know that they may may not be in that mindset for whatever the reason. Maybe Mm -hmm. we're talking with some organization and there's a new person coming in, but the, the relationship between the organization is an old one. So is there a way to sort of set the states in a way that you you stack it on your favor that you know there's more advantages for both parties that outcome or at least at the outset
1: yeah there there absolutely is so i mean the first thing is to is something that that i would call naming the game so when you walk in the room and let's say you start negotiating and you can tell that the other side is defensive and and holding back information and uh you know trying to play different games the, one of the things that I try to do is simply say, "Look, you know we can negotiate this way, um where we both kind of hold back and push back, et cetera, but I don't think that's going to help us over the learn over the long term um, and let me propose that we try a different way of negotiating where I think because we're going to be doing this for a long time, hopefully, where we can both really try to come up with the best deals possible so So one approach is to just name the game and say, you know and it's interesting because there are a lot of people. Who don't realize there's another way to negotiate they they think you know what they see in the movies as you mentioned um, or you know on tv is is the way to negotiate when in fact it's really not so so i think that's one idea is to name things directly and try to highlight for the other that there's another way to do this that would be very likely um, you know more beneficial to both of you over the long term so that's one the other one that I use and I've been using more frequently and comes out in, in my recent book is using stories to help them to understand how taking a different approach would be beneficial. So um, what what I'm noticing in my negotiations is that when I say, well, let me share with you a story of how I've done this in the past and lay out a scenario where it looked like, you know, we we might have a, a win-lose negotiation. But we reframed it and ended up having more of that mutual gains approach that I told you. And that we found value and it was a, a much better deal than we would have ever had. By painting that picture using what what we often call illustrative specificity. So, you know, painting an an example very clearly for someone, it can be very persuasive in a almost um non-confrontational manner because you're telling them a story you know and when you say let me share a story with you people's minds almost immediately go back to say when they were children and an older person their grandparents sat them on their knee and told them a story it's disarming and
0: that's upon a time
1: (laughs) exactly right and so it's a nice way of of trying to change a dynamic that often exists uh, in, in a negotiation. And, and and that is, by the way, one of the harder things, because when people come in with a certain mindset, that's what they're looking for, right? If everything looks like a nail, they use a hammer. And the idea is to, to replace the hammer with, with something else.
0: And you can do that, even if you're the, the sort of the weaker power party there, if you realize the situation.
1: Yeah, and in fact, and it, yeah, you absolutely can. And in fact, when you are the weaker power, one of the tools and tactics that we often talk about using is sort of framing the agenda and framing the negotiation the way you would like to, or at least trying to, because people don't realize that the frame that you put on a negotiation is critically important, right? It's, it's what you're going to talk about. So who gets to frame the negotiation and who gets to lay out the agenda matters greatly. So one piece of advice for people who don't have power in negotiation is try very hard, Uh, To to sort of write up the agenda and frame things in a way that would help you. That's one of the tactics that you've got at your disposal to do that. And you mentioned, by the way, other mistakes. The other one that I I wanted to make sure to mention is this notion of compromise. Uh, Often people equate negotiation with compromise, which is another reason, by the way, that people don't like it because they look at it and they say, well, so I have to give something up in order to reach some kind of an agreement. Um, but I don't want to give something up because it's really important to me. That's not effective negotiation. To me, negotiation is about creativity and problem solving. And you can always compromise later at the very end. It should be sort of the last stop on the train, not the first one. What you ought to be doing is thinking, I'm going to go into this negotiation and I'm going to try to get the other person to think in a creative way with me and to problem solve. And to think you and I as negotiators have a negotiation problem in front of us? How do we solve it? How do we create the best deal possible? How do we manage this conflict? And so much of the time I find compromise is not necessary. It's only necessary because people seem to rush there and think it is. And so I would really encourage folks to hit the pause button on compromising and instead think more about, about being creative and problem solving and Taking that orientation toward your negotiations.
0: So, you're saying that actually they sort of skip the process because it's probably painful and they don't want to be in that position and and they start to compromise before uh, you actually, beforehand, you should actually talk about more like, uh, okay, what are we doing here? What is the big picture? You know, why are we here? You know, what's the value for both parties? Sort of set the objectives and see that we are in a bigger frame in the same and everybody understands what is this really about and when we when we understand the values and the dynamics there then later it's easier to go to the compromising or if you need to do or some kind of a trading
1: yeah that, that that's exactly it and, and people compromise typically for for two reasons one is that they a lot of people as you mentioned have anxiety about the negotiation process and so they don't want to lose a deal or they don't want to Uh, If the other person is putting pressure on them, they'd rather just compromise and get something. Um, But the other is, as you mentioned, when a difficult issue comes up in a negotiation, people often say, well, let's just split the difference and move on. And the problem with splitting the difference and moving on is you don't really know what's important to, to the other side. You haven't explored in the way that you just talked about of what do you value? What really matters to you here? Because what matters to you? is how you create better deals. And if you don't dig down for what we would call interest and what's really motivating people, then you're skipping a big part of the process. And when you rush to compromise, that's exactly what you're doing. You're not really probing for what is it that's really important to this person? And it's not what they tell me. Right? What they tell me is what they what we would call their positions, but what's really important for them? What's going on under the surface? Are their interests and their interests are all of those things that bring them value uh, in a negotiation and so if you haven't dug down and really figured out what's going on in a negotiation you're missing all kinds of opportunities to create those better deals and to
0: not compromise and this goes back to the research mm-hmm. you have to understand what is it, even the hidden value or the hidden agendas in there? That what is actually driving them? What is the most important thing for them? And it may not be any of those things you think that you have to give up in order to achieve a good deal for both parties. That's
1: exactly right.
0: So were those all the fallacies wrote an excellent book? And uh, I think there was like, was there five or uh, probably there was something still Mm-hmm. uh missing or did we cover most of them already well I just want to make the, sure that we close the loop
1: yeah the other one that that's missing is that uh a lot of times people see their goal in negotiation as reaching agreement um when in fact that's actually not the purpose of negotiation and a lot of people are very surprised when i say that the purpose of negotiation is to meet Yeah,
0: it's counterintuitive. It isn't called an agreement. <laughs> right. Well,
1: I mean, it, right. People are like, what do you well, mean I'm supposed not to, you know sign? <laughs> right. People are like, what do you mean I'm not supposed to reach agreement? And it's not that you're, you're not supposed to. It's just that that's not your objective. That's not your goal. And I think people get things confused in that way. Because if my goal is to reach agreement, I remember, I'll, I'll share a story with you. Um, one of my first jobs in, in the world of negotiation consulting uh, was with a small company. And I got a call from the CEO, and that he had a sales team of six people. And he said, I'd like you to come and uh, do a negotiation training with my sales folks and um, figure out why they're bringing back such poor deals because they are. So I said, sure, no problem. So I went and did the training. And then during one of the breaks, at, I think it was at lunch, I said, Your boss told me that you guys are coming back with deals that are are not very good for the company. Like, why would you do that? Um, And one of them said, well, it's our metrics. And I said, what do you mean it's your metrics? And he said, well, uh, we are gauged as salespeople on whether we reach agreement or not. Not on whether it's a good agreement for the company or not, but whether we come back with an agreement. That's how we get our bonuses.
0: So I went back to the CEO. Yeah, you, you just get what you measure, basically. Well,
1: right. And so I went back to the boss and I said, um, actually, you're the problem. <laughs> I said, you're <laughs> giving them instructions that, that are kind of counterintuitive, that they're actually missing the mark. What you ought to be saying to them is that these deals need to be profitable. And so they were so fixated on reaching an agreement that they didn't care whether it was actually beneficial to the the company because that's how they were gauged. So the point is that in negotiation, um, we have a goal. We have an objective that we're trying to meet. That is how you should gauge your negotiations. Did I meet my goal as best as possible? Um, And if you didn't, then, you know, I often say to people, because we talk about a concept called your BATNA, And your BATNA is your best alternative to a negotiated agreement. And all that really means is if you can't reach agreement with the other side, what are you going to do? What are you going to walk away to, if you will? right? And, And so, you know, for me, if I go through a negotiation process and I realize at the end that it's actually more beneficial for me to exercise my BATNA, to walk away from this particular deal, Than to sign on the dotted line, that's a successful negotiation to me. A lot of people would say you failed. And I would say absolutely not, because to me, it's about meeting my objectives. And I can meet my objectives better by walking away to another deal than I can by reaching this agreement. And so that is, again, it's where you look, it's where you focus and put your attention. But it's a really important difference because when people believe that their goal in negotiation is to reach agreement, they reach bad ones.
0: Yeah, because they want to sort of finish it. They want to have an agreement. That's like like in your story. I think it also shows in you, if if you already accept it, I may not have an agreement and I may walk away without a deal and that's okay.
1: That's right. It takes pressure off actually. You're exactly right. That when people sit there and they say, huh, you know what? I actually think that especially when you're planning, you also know what the parameters are of what you should accept right? And this is back right in that preparation phase, you do your homework and you say, if they aren't willing to go past this point, then this deal no longer makes sense for me. And, and so if you don't do that, if you're thinking to yourself, I need to, you know, reach some kind of agreement here, um, you don't define those things and you're really subject to making bad deals because you have not defined the limits for yourself.
0: And i don 't know what's that actually even in your book, but you know sort of it is like a self harm situation you don 't have a deal when you walk in mm. yeah you, you you did a bad deal and now you 're actually in a worse position because you you did a horrible deal, maybe you're losing money and you tied up and you 're going to do anything else so yeah. it 's actually way better to walk away
1: yeah and um, one of the case studies in the book that uh, that I share is about a company. Who um, was based in the Middle East and they had signed a deal with a shipping company to transport ore, uh, aluminum ore, because they make aluminum products. And, and they reached a deal, and literally within months, um, this was back in 2008, we had that global economic meltdown. And so for them, the deal that they signed was $25 you know, dollars, uh, a ton or whatever it was, right? And the market dropped to $10 a ton. And immediately, they were in this really difficult position. Um, and they had to try to think about creatively, how do I how do we renegotiate that? And and so there are factors, and there are also lots of circumstances that change along the way in negotiation that um, are important and, and out of your control. I mean, that's the thing that, that I think is really important for people to grasp. And, and it's back to that 80-20 rule, which is, there's a lot that you can determine, but there are a lot of factors in negotiation, whether they're market forces or other things, that uh, might prevail now, but in six months could be very, very different and make a, what seems like a, a reasonable deal then uh, something quite bad now. Um, so there are a lot of those factors uh, that come to play. That's, that's exactly right.
0: One of the interesting things I picked up from your book was the post-settlement settlement. Mm-hmm. Can you describe what that is?
1: Sure. So post settlement settlement, it's a very interesting idea. Uh, it was started by a colleague of mine named Howard Rafa at Harvard Business School. It, it ties back into something we talked about, which is compromise. So he was convinced that most negotiators compromised. They essentially uh, did not explore for what really mattered to people for all the value in a negotiation that they were compromising too early and too quickly. So he proposed an idea called Post Settlement Settlement, um, sort of the least sexy name he could think of, I think, but but the idea is important, <laughs> right? And so what he basically did is he, he said to parties in, in a negotiation, come to me and, and if I can make your agreement better for both of you, you'll give me a percentage, not just one or the other, but for both of you. And he was so sure that he could, because he knew that most people rushed to compromise, um, that that he, he essentially did about 300 cases over the course of a a few year period. And in 90% of those cases, he was able to find value for people. And it's a simple question that he encourages people to ask, which is, when you believe you've reached agreement, hit the pause button and say to the other negotiator, hey, would you be willing to look at our agreement and see if we can't make it better for both of us? Are there things that we didn't include before we sign on the dotted line? Are there things that we didn't include that we could include that would have value for you and for me. And as you say, in the book, there's a a case study of exactly that with a company that does recycling uh, and working with a a distributor. And and they asked that question um, based on some of my tutelage, because I was having to do a training with them at the time. And I probed a a little bit and asked them had they had this conversation with the client. And it turned out that they hadn't. And they went back and they had the conversation and they were able to uh, to to make the deal better. And, so, and, and one of the nice things about this is that you already have a deal, right? You already have a deal that's on the table and you can always go back there and say, okay, we couldn't find anything. That's fine. But back to your point about taking pressure off, um, there is no pressure when you ask this question because you already have that deal, right? So then it people are more able to get into a creative brainstorming kind of mode. Um, once you know that your fallback is that I already have this deal. So maybe I could think a little bit creatively uh, and differently uh, in this instance and see what we can find.
0: Just a technical question, but I'm, I'm curious. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you recommend to actually sign the, no, the original deal? Because then you have a deal, it's a deal, signed deal. Uh, because... At least for me, it, uh, the question comes as well that okay, if we do this, can I actually blow off the whole deal if we you know start to talk about some stuff and and then it's like okay, we realize that maybe the the actual deal, the original deal, is for stuff happens. You know, what's your advice? How to do this if you want to do this because it's not sort of a regular standard way of doing things.
1: Yeah, I mean, typically I don't. I typically will say, look, I, I know we have a deal on the table and I'm actually comfortable with it, but before we sign it can we just take a minute and think about whether there's anything that that we could add from your point of view? And I'm going to think about it from my point of view uh, before we sign off on it. So I, it's never been my experience that people say, well, um, based on this latter part of the conversation, I don't want to do the deal anymore. Um, It usually only is an enhancer. It's only a way of making it better. So I don't I I don't encourage people to sign because then there's a finality to it and I don't know whether people would take the post settlement settlement process as seriously whereas if it's still you're still holding a little bit of something out there before you sign.
0: Can you do that with um well, I've seen at least the difference between the big boss or the owner of the company or someone who has the, the power to do whatever moves or, you know, even exceptional moves in, in the, you know, in the negotiations. Mm-hmm. And then someone who is sort of a middle level employee and, and they don't just don't have the power. It's not that it's anything else, but they, they just they have their certain limits where they can move. Uh, can you do that in all the levels of the organization when you're negotiating, or is is there something you know where, where this works better than in, in other situations?
1: Well, I think you need to know the parameters of what you can do. You know, in my mind, there's in, in most negotiations there's an internal element to the process. For example, if you're negotiating with a client, uh, it behooves you to to meet with your boss or a team of folks and say, let's talk about. parameters of the negotiation and where you don't want me to go beyond. When you do that, you can negotiate with much more confidence. So I think if you were to go through the process internally, um, you'll feel a lot more comfortable at the table to do that exploration and realize that, hey, this is a red line that I can't cross. So if the other side were to ask you, could you add this? And you know you can't, you know the answer. So So I think it, you know, for me, it's certainly possible at all levels of the organization. Uh, But in order to do that, I believe it's important that you ought to spend some time internally talking to those people that the deal is going to impact, and saying, "Tell me your interest here, and and where are these places that you don't feel like I should cross?" Um, And then, but within that, then you can sort of more freely explore.
0: One of the takeaways for me uh, from the book was that um, leave money on the table. If you have the power position, if there's something in there, don't squeeze everything out of every deal. It's better to sort of uh, take the high road. For the sake of the the relationship, but otherwise as well. Is some situations where you should not do that, or is that always sort of a nice and kind advice to to follow?
1: Well, I I think that, When you might not want to do that, and this is a, you have to be careful here, but when you might not want to do that is when it's a one-time negotiation and you're really sure that you're not going to end up negotiating with this person again in the future. And I, you know, as, as you all know, as you're listening to this, you know, that we never know what the future holds. There's a lot of uncertainty in life and things like that. And so, you know, if you negotiate with your reputation always in mind, that's, you're going to be safe and, and that's the best way to do it. You know, I, I often say to somebody, it is really not worth sacrificing your reputation for a few more dollars or a few more euros. Um, but you know, if you are in that one-off kind of scenario where you're purchasing a home and you're never going to see these people again, or you are buying a car and you want to get the best price or whatever it might be. Um, in your business dealings, you're in an industry where you do have a lot of one time negotiations, and you don't have a lot of long term relationships, then I think it's okay to go for trying to do the best that you possibly can. Um, But like I said, you know, in the vast majority of industries, that's not how it works. And, and I do believe that you need to be really careful, because there are a lot of negotiations out there that look like one time affairs. And Lo and behold, you turn around and that person is standing there six months later, and it's someone you've got to deal with. And if that's the case, you've really created a problem for yourself.
0: Yeah, I tend to think, think that uh, people forget the details, the facts, but they never forget how you treat them. The emotional state where when, they, when you do something, and that will serve the decades. You know, it can be that you were the rookie of some company, and now you're the CEO 20 years, 30 years later, and the guy who was treating batteries is just the opposite side, <laughs> and now you're getting your payback.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, that's you know, th- and there's a case in the book that is very much about that about a a, a a startup company that needed an infusion of capital, and the person who was willing to give it to them did so, but really took advantage of them. And uh, when he five years later wanted to take uh, his company public, he had to divest of those shares, and and the person involved knew that he could now take advantage of him um because he needed that and as a result it became that game of one-upping and um and so it's something you have to be really careful of uh and I think a lot of people when they're confronted or when they're given the opportunity to take advantage of somebody they might do it without realizing that it could come back to haunt them so like I said you know I remember my grandmother often saying to me the only thing that you have in this world is your name and your reputation everything else is pointless and I always, she's in the back of my head a lot when I'm negotiating and, and thinking about some of these things, because, um, it's a good litmus test to say to yourself, what should I do this? Uh, and, and is it the right thing to do, et cetera. And, and I will tell you that from my point of view and all the negotiations that I've been involved in, I've done far better by leaving money on the table, treating the other side, um, in a manner where I know they have a goal as well. I mean, that's the thing about negotiation is it's an interdependent process. I need you, and you need me, uh, and that's why we're sitting here trying to figure this out. If we didn't, we'd just walk away. And and when you treat the other the way you want to be treated, you're not going to lose.
0: There's in the book. Um, it's this is actually about the, the transportation case, and for those who haven't read the excellent book, you should. Uh, but just uh, briefly recap. There was uh, I want actually. Uh, Ask you about this? There was kind of a well. It it, it was an ethical dilemma. Mm-hmm. there. And mm-hmm. It's not even a dilemma. I want to ask you wh- what's your opinion. You, you just uh, stated the case there, but yeah. there was this, uh, this uh, you know, this case. You already mentioned that you know the price dropped, so they were, had a long contract in the shipping, and and then they leaked some information in order mm-hmm. to gain an advantage, and that was kind of an unethical thing to do. Wh- what do you think about that move?
1: Uh, I do think it, it border. It, it definitely was. I was going to say border lies on unethical, but I think it was unethical. <laughs>
0: uh, I think yeah, was, I think it was just, you know, clearly hundred percent unethical. Yeah. at least in my books. <laughs> yeah,
1: I, so so basically, you know, they had become privy to. They did a, a, a forensic accounting analysis of the situation, and they found that there was a consultant that might have done some things illegally, and so they put that out to the press in the country where the shipping company was based, and um and and it put pressure on them because this the country where where you know the the shipping company was based had a very strong moral and ethical culture and they didn't they certainly being seen in that way was not a good thing <laughs> and so so i i do believe that um you have to be very careful with something like that i mean that was a very dangerous thing to do uh and i you know my understanding is that the relationship went forward and they've continued to work together over the years. I think perhaps on both sides, there was, there was uh, some aspects of some of that. And, and so, um, you know, but I think in that scenario, it it was a very uh, questionable action that did change the dynamics pretty dramatically, but it was absolutely questionable. And, could easily have come back to hunt them. I mean, they could have easily pulled the plug on the whole deal and said, but if you're going to um, act and engage in, in the, with those kinds of tactics, we're not doing business with you. And, and I wouldn't be surprised if uh, if other companies would have taken that approach.
0: Yeah, at least in my case, I would ask that if I would ever do business with them, when they're going to do it to me. Yeah. If they've been done it once that can happen another time I'm not sure that I want to be dealing with these type of people then so
1: yeah and that's what and that's the prevailing attitude that that happens when you and you have something like this transpire some questionable questionable behavior
0: I've been having myself negotiations um, mainly in the well a lot of different negotiations but usually in business and in the startup field as well mm-hmm. Um, I remember one particular case where I was negotiating a deal, a VC deal, that was a series A deal. So there's some millions involved already. And uh, I was negotiating with the main partner in the VC company. And then when we were supposed to draw the contract and go to the contract negotiations, and that was was really weird. And I never seen that before. And afterwards, uh, this happened in Finland. uh, The general partner of that VC company Mm. said that, okay, now... The negotiating uh, negotiating party, the one who is actually representing the fund, the actual fund, uh, the, the uh, they were just obviously the general partners uh, managing the, the fund, but you know the actual fund where the money is coming from, which is just a legal entity, is represented by a a, a attorneys at law, a uh, yes. local company. Uh-huh. And what happened was that um, I already agreed all the you know the important terms and everything. But then comes the lawyer and mm. this turn up partner is nowhere anymore. And basically, whatever we agreed upon didn't apply anymore. Mm. And, and GP was just like playing the game that, okay, well, now you negotiate with the lawyer and, and you know, everything is on the table again. Mm. What should you do in that situation?
1: Well, you should begin by asking yourself whether you want to continue with that negotiation.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> right? But if you cannot walk away, you, sure. you're already drained out of funds and, you know, it's going too long. And it's, it's like that Agato so option is basically fold the company. How do you turn it around?
1: Yeah, so so I think, first of all, recognize what's going on is the first thing because they what what I think they were probably doing is, you know, Trying to determine. It
0: was a good bad cup type of thing. It was conscious act to do that yeah. way because they had the power. They were just using their power. Yeah. And thinking about from the lawyer's perspective, painting the picture, uh, they do it by billable hours. They're representing the fund. They're squeezing everything out of it. They don't need to, you know, I never see that lawyer again. Mm-hmm. I have to deal only with the eternal partner yeah. later on. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously it was not the smartest move from his side either, but that was sort of the setting.
1: Well, and he probably got that advice that if you go in and get some of the parameters down, we'll come, we'll come in, and we'll be able to improve things for you, right? We'll we'll drop the hammer on them, <laughs> and and take that approach. So you're right, and and so you have to recognize exactly what you said. You recognize what it is, which is a good cop bad cop thing, um, and it's also you know there's a um, when you create a sense of commitment in a negotiation, right? Like that you and they have agreed people tend to not want to walk away from that. They tend to feel like, okay, like we've, uh, we've committed to this, so we need to see it through. So there's a psychological dimension that they're also picking up on, which is creating this sense of commitment in you to not walk away from the process and then taking a harder line with you and hoping that that will stick. So, I mean, for me, I guess what I would, uh, I would have done one of two things. I would have said, look, I, Need to go back to the C to the CEO or the person that I spoke to, and discuss this. Like I'm not talking about this with you as the lawyer. Um, so I would have. Uh, lit- they
0: refuse to do that.
1: Well, so again, um, that would be a red flag.
0: <laughs> it, it is. I'm, I'm saying this is not an optimal way of doing this thing. But it was like, okay, do we yeah. call the company? We already do. And I think that was a tactic as well. They just wanted to wear us down.
1: Yeah. Well, and and there's a lot of that, and and again, back to popular conceptions of, of negotiation. I remember one time I was uh, meeting with a union representative uh, of car uh, auto workers um, union, and he said we definitely ascribe to the idea that the first person who has to get up to go to the bathroom loses the negotiation. And you know, I thought, <laughs> well, okay. I mean, I you know, I don't really know why, but okay. I guess if you really needed that negotiation, what I would have said is to the lawyer, look, if you're going to open up this whole deal that that I thought we had already agreed to, there are some parameters that we would like to focus in on that we're not really happy about. So what I think I would have done is sent the signal that, look, I want to go back and talk to this other guy. If you're not you know, comfortable with me doing that, then um, you need to understand that if you guys want to open up, the conversation again from where I thought we were um, that there are going to be some changes on our end too. And it's not going to be us just going along with whatever you say. So I think I would also send that signal to them that if you want to play this game, okay, but the game's going to cut both ways. And again, you know, it's not going to end well for anybody, but, but I think that because of the tactic that they're using, I think it's really important to send a signal that you know what people are doing, because a lot of times people think they're being very savvy and very clever about using a good cop, bad cop Mm -hmm. thing. Right. And you need to say to them, "Um, actually, I'm very clear, clear eyed about what's happening here. And you need to understand that if you guys like I said, if you want to open things back up, then we want to renegotiate these clauses because they weren't as good as we wanted on our end
0: yeah so uh, just uh, thinking it now i would probably be in the same situation again or in, in that situation i would say that okay i understand that we're starting from the scratch again what we discussed before doesn't apply with uh, this is, you are actually the person now who has the decision making power. the other guy was just i don't know practice run <laughs>
1: yeah exactly
0: <That's> right.
1: <laughs> that was good fun now we'll get down to business
0: Yeah, yeah, it's good that we can now close this quickly because we have the decision makers on the table.
1: (laughs) Right, and by the way, that's an important point, and and it's an important tactic that people utilize, which is, and it's something to clarify early on in your negotiations, is to say to the other side, if it's unclear, do you have the decision-making authority here? Because a lot of times we assume, because we're sitting with them, that they do. And there's nothing more frustrating than going through the whole process thinking that, they have the ability to decide, and then they say, okay, well, we've made really great progress. I just have to get my boss to sign off on this. And you're like, wait a minute, what? I thought you could decide. So uh, it, it's an important point, actually, in terms of process, when you, when you begin a negotiation, that you want to ask that question uh, to see what happens.
0: Another thing I come, come across quite often is that um, when somebody gives uh, a contract... Oh, that's the first proposal for the coming. It's so outlandish. Mm-hmm. It's not even anywhere near what you are sort of acceptable. What's the next move?
1: Well, first of all, I mean, so any proposal, any initial offer is designed to anchor the conversation where the other exactly. side wants it, right? So if a offer is so outlandish um, that it's completely unrealistic... To me, instead of people fall prey to this trap, which is they start negotiating from there. What you ought to do is say to them, so can you, um, you know, I did some, I did my own analysis and my numbers are, are quite different than yours. Can you help me understand how you got there? Like, why do you think that this is a reasonable offer? Like, what's it based on? And people don't ask that question nearly enough. Like I said, they just sort of start negotiating as opposed to trying to probe for what assumptions did you make? What, you know, what were you trying to accomplish? And, and what usually happens when people make those outlandish offers is there's no basis for them. It's just a trick to get you to start negotiating there because then what happens is often they will, they'll come down a good bit. And then, you know, they'll turn that around and, and remind you of that and say, well, I did start at, $5 million and we're down to a million. So look how far I've conceded, right? So it's another tactic or a trick. And so to me, the best way to handle that is make sure that you don't get anchored by that, but to then turn around and say, help me understand how you got there. Like what, what, what is this based on? Because, you know, people can give all kinds of outlandish offers for things. Um, but there has to be some justification. There has to be some reason for those offers and and so i think that's where you want to go is uh saying to the other paint a picture for me about why this is reasonable why should i say yes to this um and usually they can't that's the thing
0: one of the difficult things is that if if the deal is a bit bigger it's it's an important deal you negotiating with uh, important people as well and Mm -hmm. then comes the the lawyer the in-house lawyer or the legal department who is sort of drawing the contract Mm -hmm. and uh, not just once, but a uh, few times as well, this happened that uh, we made some modifications, adjustment to the, you know, the terms, to terms, to the details, but important ones. And the lawyer from their side comes back and, well, it appears that uh, our business partner from the other side, uh, he is not involved in the process. And uh, those modifications, those comments, those things we wanted to change, they are just completely omitted and they just do new ones. Mm. Uh, you see the power game there. Just, you know, uh, just giving a bit of a uh, uh, reason of doubt as well, the benefit of doubt in a in, in a way that maybe the, the business people were not involved and they just let it the legal people to run. You know, the negotiations there, the details. But what should you do?
1: Well, you have to be careful because every action that you take in negotiation sends a signal and sort of sets a precedent. So if you were to ec- oh. just let that happen. Um, The other side knows that they can kind of manipulate things a bit. If you were to call it out and say, you know, what happened to these clauses that were here that we wanted to discuss or whatever it might be. So recognize that in negotiation, you know, if your actions send a signal to the other side, positive or, or negative. It's funny because I do a lot of work with an engineering consulting group and they're often confronted with, um, They work on very big, like, government projects at the at the national level and at the state level here, and a lot of times they'll have the clients who would be the federal state government come back to them and say, "Hey, we need to add this, this, and this uh, into the scope, and we don't want to pay you for it." So you know, it's fifty thousand dollars worth of work, or it's ten thousand dollars worth of work that's not included in the contract. Can you just do it, right? And a lot of times. They would say to me, look, we're working on a $5 million project. We should just, if it's $10,000, we should just do it. And I say, I get it. Yes, it it should be a business decision. But when you make that decision, you need to understand that you've just sent the signal to the other side that things that are not in the contract are okay, and that they may very well come back again and ask you for more things because you just said yes to something else. I mean, one way to handle that, and one of the things that I've said to these folks is, look, uh, if you're going to do that, you need to be really clear with them that you're willing to do this once, and you're not setting a precedent about this kind of an action. In negotiation, it's really important to, in my mind, be excessively clear in your communications. I know that sounds like an oxymoron, but but it's really important that... Um, Because communication should have really been called miscommunication because it's rare that you really understand what it is that I've told you. And so if I'm not explicitly spelling out to you that, hey, we're willing to absorb this $10,000 cost for the sake of the relationship, but we're not doing it again. So don't ask. Right, Something like that. It has to be really clear if you're going to go down that road.
0: Yeah. Is it even enough? Should you even just ask that, say that, okay, okay. if I observe this thing, I want something from you as well.
1: You, you generally, and I mean, what I often say to the the consulting firm is your first response to them should be, um, well, let's drop an, a, a, an addendum to the agreement. And what's the scope, et cetera, right? So you should absolutely start there. Um, and... Yeah, I mean, you, you know, you should definitely ask if something is outside the scope of what you're talking about. Um, it's always important to say, "Well, is there some kind of back and forth here?" You know, we're willing to do it, but it's not part of this contract. So, what can you guys do for us? Um, if and you know, it's interesting because if the other negotiator, let's just imagine that you happen to know them and they say, "Listen, can you just do this for me?" You know, we're good friends and things like that, and and I'll figure out how to do this. Something for you later, or whatever. When somebody asks for a concession for the sake of the relationship, that's actually a manipulation. And that they're not really a friend or an associate in that way if they ask that, because it's a manipulation. If they're asking for a concession, they ought to be thinking there's something that they should be doing in return. So be careful there. Our tendency when we do like people is to want to do things for them and help them, but we don't want to be manipulated. And it's that fine line.
0: I think it's also important to understand that sometimes the, the people you're dealing with may not be the ones you, you're having the consequences laid, or maybe that person leaves or the relationship is not there anymore, mm-hmm. but you still have to deal what's written in the, in the contract.
1: Yeah, I see that a lot with this company, by the way, where the, the state or federal government will say, hey, if you do this for us, there's another phase of the work, and they say, okay, well, all right, we'll do this, and then the person who made that promise is gone they leave the, the, the organization or whatever, and nobody has any recollection of that promise. So, right. And, and in that instance, I often will say to them, look, can you get anything in writing that actually demonstrates that there was some kind of a, you know, sort of back and forth concession here, um, because
0: otherwise you're leaving yourself. So you got called off basically yeah. or,
1: you know, or call in the agreement, right? If they say to you, Hey, you're going to be absolutely in line for the next phase of this if you guys were to do this right and um you have something in writing that says that well that carries more weight than well bill told me this when when we agreed to it well sorry but bill doesn't work here anymore so um and we have no record of that
0: i cannot help to think about while we were talking about this uh just like uh going back to kindergarten or school it's just like how do you deal with the bully <laughs> uh-huh yeah <laughs> In a sense that we were just, just a minute ago talking about how you should not sort of uh, observe those costs. So, you know, take something and just not acknowledge that you realize what's happening Yeah. Here. So how do you respond to a, a bully?
1: <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, and, and I think, again, you know, bullies typically, uh, they push hard against you until there's pushback. And, you know, for me, when I deal with a negotiator who I think is over the top, Um, you have to let them know that this behavior is not okay, or you're not going to be forced into anything and you'd rather walk away. Um, Most kind of bully negotiators are people who think that they have the ability to just try to force things on you. And when you let them know, you know, and I mean, one of the best ways to try to deal with sort of that bullying approach in negotiation is to know what your baton is. You know, I, I mentioned that before, if you understand that you can walk away to something else, then what, what power or leverage does the bully really have? The answer is
0: not much. And if you understand what the value of what the other side is really wanting to get out of the deal, that no is a really powerful word as well. You just say no. Yeah,
1: exactly. And <laughs> you know, there are a lot of negotiators who try to use threats. You have to be very careful when you use threats because if you're not prepared to follow through on your threat as, as a forceful negotiator, you've lost all credibility. Right? I mean, I think we see this in the political realm. Um, I'm thinking of a particular politician that resides on this part of the ocean um, who uses yeah. that tactic a lot. And, and when those threats uh, are not followed up by action, then they, they lose a lot of luster. And people look at it and say, well, okay, this is their approach to negotiation. And by the way, if you're known as a negotiator who just is going to be issuing threat after threat, Um, not only are you not going to have a lot of deals, but people are going to recognize that this is the way you try to get things done and they're going to resist you. They're going to find ways of doing deals elsewhere. Um, you know, we, we fail to realize a lot of time that there are different avenues. You know, you're not the only game in town much of the time. And as a result, you know, if you're going to just issue threats and things like that, like a lot of people are going to go elsewhere. They're going to find another company that's going to do things differently
0: absolutely and and the reputation will stick with you and and you just don't see it you know at first you just people start to avoid you know doing deals with you and, and your deal flow will go bad and yeah that's what happens but it may take some years for that to go around
1: yeah that's right what is
0: your favorite word
1: my favorite word i think my favorite word is interesting because it signals to the other person that, that I might be using it that there's something in there that they've said or done that is noteworthy, and yet interesting is a vague and general enough idea that it doesn't necessarily always convey exact meaning.
0: Um, so I, I But you're not meaning it in the, in the prettiest way because it's exactly the opposite of, of interesting.
1: <laughs> well, may, maybe I am, maybe I'm not. When someone tells me something and I'm not quite sure what to make of it, I'll often say, oh, that's interesting, which means I'm thinking about what you just said, and I need probably need to think more about what you just
0: said. What is your least favorite word?
1: I might be tempted to say interesting as well. <laughs> um,
0: <laughs> now I hear the lawyer talking.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, my least favorite word, I think, is is any word that is really definitive. Um. Because to me, you know, Voltaire said there's there's nothing worse than uncertainty except certainty. Like when, when someone is so certain that they're right or that they're on the right side of history or whatever it might be, um, that's dangerous because you fail to continue to take information in and you fail to learn from your mistakes. You fail to recognize the atmosphere around you. So... Any, any words that have to deal with a very certain perspective, position, approach to things, uh, I, th- that makes me very nervous because it means that people are probably not open to thinking differently, thinking creatively, et cetera.
0: What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally?
1: Well, honestly, you know, I love what I do. I love working in the world of negotiation. I mean, I could have conversations like this every day, all day. Uh, because I find them fascinating. And so I would say that, and, and also the sort of unknown elements of what I do. Um, I love the adventure of the unknown. Uh, I've done a few different things in my life where there was a lot of uncertainty. There was a lot of question. There was a lot of uh, sort of trusting in in taking steps and seeing what happens, seeing what emerges in front of you. And I think in part that's because when I was a kid, I failed a good bit. I was a bit of a slow starter. And, and so I'm not afraid of failure. Uh, and I think not, not being afraid of failure is really helpful.
0: What turns you off?
1: I think the biggest turnoff for me are people that have a condescending attitude toward you, toward life, that they believe they're better than everybody else, uh, and they act that way. Um, I, I think that we all need to be humble as we go through life and have an air of humility about us because there's a lot of things out there in the world that, that uh, make life challenging. And we have to be forgiving of people a lot of times as well. We're not nearly as forgiving as we are. And so I think when I come across somebody who is really... Um, condescending and has a bit of a superiority complex Uh, that's a very big turnoff for me
0: what is your favorite curse word
1: I do say shit a lot (laughs) Uh, I find it to be a very helpful word a lot to blow off some steam
0: what sound or noise do you love
1: Um, I guess I would answer that as sort of sounds of nature crashing waves and birds chirping. I do a lot of walking and hiking and those things really soothe me. Like they really take me down a notch. Uh, and I'm a big fan of the ocean. So I love the waves, the crashing waves, um, and, and watch quite a few shows about dolphins and whales and how they communicate. It's all of those sounds in nature. Uh, we live in an area that's right along a a bird migration route where Canada geese fly north and south and so when I'm walking and I hear them honking away it's like those things are very soothing to me
0: what sound or noise do you hate?
1: I don't like whining and complaining <laughs> 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 I have three kids so I've heard plenty of it um, but uh, I, I just you know to me I, I you know I'm I've gotten to a place in my life where... I believe that most problems that we are confronted with can be solved if people like put their shoulder to it and put their mind to it. And, you know, whining and complaining that you're bored or that you're not happy is the opposite of that, is not really focusing on the problem, but just wallowing in your own, uh, in your own sorrow, (laughs) if you will. So I'm not a big fan of that
0: what profession other than your own would you like to attempt?
1: Well, I always want I'm a, I'm also a sports fan. So I, I grew up as a kid wanting to be a professional baseball player, which I know in, in Europe, you all wouldn't understand. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but I love sports. It's a good, it's a good release and a good, um, distraction for me. So I would, and, and, you know, baseball is the sport that I grew up here and it was sort of the, the national pastime in America. And, and so I always wanted to be a baseball player.
0: What profession would you not like to do?
1: Well, um, I'm actually not a lawyer. I got my PhD uh, instead because I felt like that process fit my style much more. I think the profession that I would least likely to be least like to be in is one that is adversarial in nature. And and in fact, part of the reason I didn't go down the road of being a lawyer was because I felt like there was a lot of Adversarial uh, aspects to the world of law, and it just didn't suit my personality. Um, I prefer to be far more engaged in creativity, problem solving, brainstorming, thinking that way about the possibilities than uh, about people pitted against each other. You know, and that's why I kind of see negotiation differently. I don't see it in that adversarial way as much as I can because I don't really believe it benefits
0: us if you could be a co-founder of any startup in any era, which one would you choose?
1: You know, this is an interesting question. Um, and I and I thought about it and I thought probably Apple, uh, mostly because I thought and I still think that there was so much interesting creativity that went on in in the Steve Jobs's garage uh, about what the world could look like and about how technology could aid in that, process of moving humanity forward but I think it was because of the creativity aspect of it and the process that that they brought to the table that I thought
0: was so fascinating any final words for the audience
1: um, only that I would encourage you to embrace negotiation it's something that I think a lot of people have run away from and not run toward it's, it's a little bit like the the old Chinese finger trap where you put your finger in each end and when you pull away, it gets tighter. But when you come together, it, it loosens. And I think when people come toward negotiation, when they embrace it, when they understand its value and its power and how it can really help you in your life, um, then I think you get in, almost entranced by it. Like It becomes a fascinating process of how you live your life, how you deal with problems and conflicts and situations. And so I would encourage people to try to see negotiation more along the lines of what we've discussed today than, um, than what they might know. And maybe just to try to learn negotiation anew. go out and pick up one of the books, um, that's out there on negotiation. It could be mine. It could be others. Uh, and, and Can you
0: name a few books, good ones? To sure.
1: Well, I mean, and and mine is the book of Real World Negotiations. But um, you know, if people really want to change their perception on negotiation, I would have them start by reading a b- the book called Getting to Yes: a Negotiating Agreement Without Giving In, that was written by Fisher and Ury in 1981, and is still in the bestseller list, and really transformed the world of negotiation. Um, There's another book called Never Split the Difference by Christopher Voss, which is also good. Uh, There's a book called Negotiating the Impossible by Deepak Malhotra. Uh, And um, there's a book called The Art of Negotiation by Michael Wheeler, who talks about um, how the essence of negotiation is is really being able to think uh, on your feet and being adaptable. And as a result, he encourages people to learn the skills of improv uh, as a core skill set. So those are four or five. Um, There's also a really good one called Negotiating Rationally by my friend Mark Young, but another one called Beyond Reason by Roger Fisher and Daniel Shapiro about the role of emotions in negotiation. And this is a place where a lot of people struggle, uh, which is in managing the emotional side of negotiations. And so they offer up some ideas about how to do that uh, more effectively.
0: Thanks, Charles. Was, it was so fun to talk with you. I could you know, do this, uh, like you say, the whole day long. Uh, I thank you so much for having uh, you in my show and good luck with all your negotiations.
1: Yeah, thank you. I really appreciate you having me on and taking the time to do it and, and all your great questions as well.
0: Hopefully you enjoyed. Thanks for listening. Until next time.